you turn with me in your copies of God's word to the third psalm, the third psalm, our prose translations, our reading there will begin at the superscription. Psalm 3, starting there at the superscription. Hear once again the word of our God. Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which save my soul. There is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me my glory and the uplifter of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless us under it richly this evening. Affliction is the Christian's seminary as well as it is his refining fire. And certainly our psalm shows both elements of Christian experience this evening. In the first psalm, we learn something about the way of the godly man. In the second psalm, we saw the object of the psalmist's faith, Zion's king. In the third psalm, we hear David's anguished and yet faith-filled cry to God for mercy. I want us to take up this psalm briefly this evening with those themes in front of us. Uh, Chiefly this, that you and I get to see something of the psalmist that we haven't seen in the preceding two psalms. We don't see his external character. We don't see so much the, the exercise of his faith on its object, but we see instead the exercise of his faith under duress, under incredible affliction. And you see that in a number of ways. You recognize in the very first three verses of this psalm that it begins with petition. In fact, all three verses should be considered as as part of a single prayer. Verses 4 to 6 follow with something of the psalmist's experience. What is it both within his soul and outside? That is, what is it in his wrestlings with God that he finds? And then verses 7 and 8 conclude with petition once again. This is the psalmist's anguished plea for mercy. But as you notice from the second verse to the eighth, there is something of a contrast. A contrast that runs through all three sections of the psalm. In the second verse, you have the cry of the enemies. There is no help for him in God. But then as you look at verse eight, you notice the psalmist's rejoinder. Salvation is of the Lord. 
As much as this is the psalmist's cry out of pain and under the, or in the crucible of affliction, it is, as we've already said, a faith-filled cry. You have here, in contrast, one saying that David has no help from God and David affirming all along that his God, Jehovah, is the one to whom salvation belongs. And so generally, very generally, we see this evening that this psalm reminds us that God's people, under his rod, are to persevere by faith. We see that in the example of the psalmist himself. It's given to us not so much in terms of a doctrine, but it's given to us by way of example. Here we see the exercise of David's heart, and here it's manifestly the pattern that you and I are to follow. All of God's people, under his rod, are to persevere by faith. And briefly this evening, I want us to look at this under three headings. I want us to look, first of all, at the man's suffering. And, and friend, as we do so, as we look at the affliction that the psalmist is faced with this evening, I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is what you have in the very first verse, and that is that these are personal enemies. These are those who are set against David himself. He's not speaking that there are those who are generally enemies of Israel here. These are those who have singled David out for adversity. These are, as he says, my enemies. And then he says that there are many. There are a multitude of people who intend David harm. That's the idea. But if we look at the superscription to this psalm, we can certainly get more detail, can't we? We know the historical occasion. This is Absalom's rebellion that this psalm is forged in. And, and, and so what do we have here? Well, we have a number of characters. Characters like Ahithophel that form part of the many that are set against the psalmist. You remember Ahithophel. He was that great counselor. And, and you remember in, in 2 Samuel it's described that his counsel in those days was received as if a man had inquired at an oracle of God. He was one to whom David and afterward Absalom resorted for counsel. And they thought of his counsel as being godly, as being sound, and as being pious. And yet Ahithophel is named, numbered, as it were, among the many in our psalm. And not only is it Ahithophel, of course, but it's Absalom himself. One of David's beloved sons. You remember at the end, when Absalom is killed, you remember David's lament, Would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. One whom David deeply loved is among the many who are described for us in Psalm 3, who have singled out David for harm. But I want you to notice in that second verse, there's an affliction that goes, as it were, beyond simply this adversity. And it's in that accusation. And it is an accusation in the second verse that we can't miss. They say there is no help for him in God. Now, friend, I want you to recognize that you and I are not to interpret that as, as, as though it were blasphemy. As though these ones were saying that, that God was willing to break covenant with David. That's not how you're to interpret that at all. It's far more pointed, not at God, but at David. This is a tacit accusation that David was a hypocrite. And God was no succor. He was no help or refuge to a hypocrite. 
You remember how the book of Job plays this out. Eliphaz, coming to Job in the fourth chapter, puts it to him this way. He says, is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? In other words, as he looks at Job's affliction, doesn't he say there that, that there obviously you see that your hypocrisy has been exposed. You're truly not a believer. And God is now revealing that to the world. And then Eliphaz goes further. He says, whoever perished being innocent. And he's thinking specifically about Job's experience. Whoever, who was truly pious, ever faced such extraordinary providences as you. Such extraordinary afflictions as you now encounter. The implication is, Job was a hypocrite. And these providences only expose that. And friend, that's the tacit accusation in our text. These ones are turning to David and saying, quite obviously, God is exposing you to the world. God is not your salvation. He's not your refuge. You are not one of his. And friend, you and I shouldn't miss that the psalmist takes this as a principal part of his affliction. We don't have much by way here of description of what he faced. But we have this. What does this teach us? Well, friend, as we hold all of these themes together, what you recognize is that here you have a picture of one who is favored by God, who nevertheless met cross-providences and harsh accusations. That's what these first several verses show us. But I want us to go a step further this evening. There is a depth to this altar and to the godliness that's displayed there. Just as there is also a depth to the affliction of God's people that I think we often fail to appreciate. There's a depth in the psalmist's affliction in this text that I think we could quickly overlook. And that is that in verse 2, that accusation, that accusation stings because there is an element of truth in it. The accusation that Job's friends raised with Job was so hard and so harsh because though it was false in its conclusion, it contained an element of truth. A friend, if there was no element of truth in such things, they would not sting. But this certainly stung. And why did it do so? A friend, we need to remember that God does often do this with the hypocrite. The scriptures teach us that God, through providence, will expose the hypocrite through such providences. Just to give you a few examples, take what you have in Isaiah 33. Sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. No, what he's saying there, God is going to use these extraordinary judgments to expose that these ones have no help in God. And right throughout the book of Job, as you encounter Job's friends making their arguments, though they have a wrong conclusion about Job, they are correct in this, that God does at times deal with hypocrites in this way. At times, God will drive the hypocrite out into the open through affliction. There's the sting, but that's not all that we have there. Friend, what you have to recognize is that Behind all of this, they're saying that God is the one who is the Lord of providence. Absalom may be rebelling. Ahithophel may have defected. 
Israel might have thronged to Absalom, but God ruled over all. And, and all of that's true, isn't it? Friend, though there was so much sin involved, nothing went beyond the decree. And you remember how Job responds to that truth. When the Salbians, the Chaldeans, they raid his flocks and kill his servants. You remember Job's response to that. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Job, I thought it was the Sabaeans. I thought it was the Chaldeans. Surely you're charging God foolishly by saying that the Lord took those things from you. The text goes on to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. There are two elements of truth then to this accusation. The first element is that, yes, at times God does do this to expose hypocrites. And the second element of truth is that God, of course, it was his hand that was at work even in this affliction. Friend, as you hold all of those things together, that sting only becomes harder when you recognize that they're saying that the sweet psalmist of Israel was a hypocrite at heart. A mediocre Christian, uh, one who is, a, who is a follower, not a leader in religion, if, if they're exposed one day to be a hypocrite, no, nobody's quite rattled. But when someone like David, who is used mightily by God, not only to, to, to demonstrate godly rule, not only to be a support to the church, but, but even to lead the church of God in her praises. When that one is accused, as David is here, of being a true hypocrite, well, friend, that's a harsh accusation. They cast aspersions all throughout David's life. And yet, in God's providence, that's precisely what David had to feel. Friend, I think we fail to appreciate the depth of the psalmist's affliction here. But those three elements I hope we keep in front of us as we continue. Because what this teaches us, friend, as it is in our Psalter, is that this is not going only to be David's experience. Your experience and mine will have some analogy. You and I will find cross-providences and harsh accusations in our own lives. That is part of your cross. But we, go, we can go a step further. Not only do we see in this psalm the man suffering, but we also see his shield. I want you to notice at verse 3 these words. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Now, obviously this is adversative, meaning the psalmist is making a clear contrast be, 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 uh, sorry, regarding what you have in the second verse. In the second verse, they're saying there is no help for him in God, David's rejoinder is simply, O Lord, thou art a shield for me. Now, what you recognize, friend, here is that he is now appealing to general covenant promises. This could quickly, I think we could quickly overlook this, but when he calls God his shield, that's not a promise that was given specifically and exclusively to David. That was something that was given, you remember, very explicitly to Abraham in Genesis 15 and to all of those who entered into the same covenant. God would become their shield. And what David does in this moment is he applies himself to a promise that was not exclusive to him as king. 
But that which was his inheritance as he was numbered among God's people, let them claim he was a hypocrite. Yet, says David, you are indeed a shield. I am truly a member of the covenant. But then we can go a step further. He says here that the Lord is his glory. And the sense there is that the Lord is the one who secures his glory. That is everything that David possessed. He acknowledges that the Lord is its ultimate custodian. But then he says this, he is also the uplifter of mine head. Friend, the idea behind that is really straightforward. It's the idea of victory. And all of these truths in this third verse induce the psalmist in verse 4 to prayer. Not not despairing as one might imagine after verse 2. No, these promises, these things fuel him to run to the throne of grace. And you notice there in verse 4 he says, He heard me out of his holy hill. Now at this time, of course, the temple was not standing in Jerusalem. So what is the psalmist referring to? Well, the answer lies in the fact that, that God... Had, it had already directed that the, that, that the Ark of the Covenant would be taken to Jerusalem. It was so under David. And as it was, friend, what you recognize there is that David is making a reference. He's making a reference to the very thing that we read of in, in Hebrews 9. To the mercy seat. To that which sat on the top of that Ark. Friend, as you recognize throughout the scriptures, you'll find time and time again that the people of God appeal to Hezekiah twice and throughout the Psalter references can be found where they appeal to the God who sits between the cherubim. Friend, it is a reference in one sense to the Ark of the Covenant, but it goes far deeper. The sense there is that they are invoking the God who sits on the seat of mercy. David says, from that seat of mercy... In Zion, God heard him. Now, we need to go much further, um, just briefly this evening. Just take the last phrase in verse 3. The Lord is referred to by the psalmist there as the uplifter of his head. That's staggering if you remember the historical context. Because in Second Samuel, you remember you find these words. David went up. By the ascent of Mount Olivet, he wept as he went, and his head was covered. And then he goes on to say, and all of the people that followed went likewise. David goes, flees Jerusalem in this moment as, as we're thinking of the very time of the composition of this psalm with his head cast down, covered. And yet he says God is the uplifter of his head. Go just to the line before, where he says that the Lord is his glory. Well, friend, do you remember the, the curse of Shimei? Do you remember the descendant of Saul? The Lord, says Shimei, hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom. David saying that the Lord is the one who secures his glory, all that he has. God is custodian to all of his goods. And yet in this providence, Shimei turns around and says, in fact, God is giving the kingdom to Absalom, your usurping son. And you remember, friend, how David responded to the curses of Shimei. David said, let him curse. The Lord hath said unto him, curse David. 
I said to you that there's a depth of affliction here. Well, friend, you and I, I think we're, we're coming in some part to a greater understanding of it as we keep the historical context before us. As David refers to the curse of Shimei, tracing it back to God as its first cause. Friend, the, the, true, remar- the truly remarkable element of this verse, this third verse, is that while David acknowledges all of his affliction is from God, while he acknowledges that he leaves all of it, ultimately because God had ordained it so, with his head cast down, when he hears Shimei say that the Lord, far from securing him, was in fact delivering him up to Absalom his son, when he calls God his shield, What you see there is David resting upon promises and not providences, all the while acknowledging that all is from God. That first thing that you find there in the third verse, that God is referred to as a shield, is especially staggering because, of course, what we read in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan tells David, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. Isn't it striking, friend, that in the moment when all of this will come to bear in a very poignant, dramatic way, when it's fulfilled, the words that Nathan has given here, that God would be a sword to the house of David, that God, that David nonetheless turns to God and says that he is his shield. Oh, friend, I hope, I hope we see the depth not only the man's affliction, but the greatness of his faith. If we put all of this together, friend, what do we have? What we have here is a reminder that what what David was facing in Absalom's rebellion was what Nathan had promised, or what God had promised through the prophet. Nathan prophesies, thou didst it secretly, your sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. That's the moment that David finds himself in. The moment when God brings that to pass. And friend, we need to recognize the depth of that affliction. David is seeing the fulfillment of that promise 12 years after it was given to him. Twelve years had elapsed from the moment that Nathan had promised this and it was fulfilled in Absalom's rebellion. Friend, you and I, we shouldn't imagine David here as fretting all of those twelve years. David was evidently a man of faith. But I, I have no doubt that he thought about the words of Nathan. In fact, as a godly man, he ought to have thought about the words of Nathan. That one day these things would come to pass. And after 12 years, the Lord brought it. I want you to notice, too, part of this affliction lies in its uniqueness. His enemy is none other than one of his most beloved sons. And then, friend, in a way that, in a a tragic moment that, that really defies any human composition, you find David walking slowly from Jerusalem, And as he does so, walking away, as it were, from all the blessings God had given him from the death of Saul, 
What do I mean? Well, you see David leaving the throne of Israel. And as he slowly makes his way from the throne, you find him with less and less friends. And finally, he's driven outside of Jerusalem. And he's made an exile once more, as though you're going back in time. And if that weren't enough, he encounters one of the house of Saul. And that man says, now, now he says, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. God is rewarding you for all that you did to the house of Saul. That's a sharp affliction, friend. I don't think you and I could possibly know personally how deep that particular affliction would be. And yet, David falls to prayer. He prays in faith, verse 4. He heard me out of his holy hill. Friend, what you and I are supposed to see in this text, as we appreciate more the depth of his affliction, is that here you have an example of faith running to God's mercy, even while God chastens him for sin. This is a staggering text. And friend, what you see here then is something like a child calling upon his father's favor even while his father wears a scowl. David entrusts himself to divine love, calls God his shield, even as the sword of God seems to be coming upon his home. Friend, that's the kind of faith you and I see in this text. A remarkable picture. But as we close, I want us to look at the, at the remainder of the psalm, where he says here that he was sustained. He says, the Lord heard me in verse 4. Now, what David sees there is that his purpose, his suit to the throne of grace has prevailed. And he demonstrates this in a strange way, or a seemingly strange way in verse 5. He says, I laid me down and slept, I waked, for the Lord sustained me. Now, I want you to notice this. This is not a statement of victory. This is not the conclusion of Absalom's rebellion. What David is saying here is, the Lord God has sustained me yet another night. And David credits that to the mercy of God. By faith, David has come to the conclusion that the Lord sustained him. Friend, in a despairing moment, the believer can believe from time to time that God sustains him simply to cast him down. But not so David. He doesn't, as the psalmist does in Psalm 102, say, you have set me up to cast me down. And your wrath now has has replaced your mercy. That's not David's reply to any of this. Even in the face of the obvious chastening hand of God. No, as he looks at the mercies, even the sustaining throughout the night, he attributes it all to the Lord's mercy. And so, friend, you see a man who interprets providence by promise and not the other way around. Friend, how would David be if he reversed that order? If instead of using the promises of God given to him as the lens through which to interpret reality, he took providences and tried to read the promises through that. In this moment, what would that speak to David? That there indeed was no hope for him in God. 
Oh, and by the way, whenever these ones turn around and obviously, David, you're a hypocrite. Obviously, God is exposing your sin. Friend, for David, given what we read in 2 Samuel 12, that would have stung because there was a truth to that. This was the moment when God would demonstrate what he had promised he would in 2 Samuel 12. If David interpreted promises through providences, he would despair. But that's not what he does. He sees that God has sustained him another day, and he says, that is another token, another reason for me to entrust myself to the faithfulness of God. And finally, friend, in verse 7, you find this. He says, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies. Again, friend, you and I are not supposed to see here the end of Absalom's rebellion. You and I are supposed to see here that David takes himself back to previous victories that God had given him. Just to illustrate that point, in verse 7, he's still pleading with God to save him. But then right after, he takes himself to previous mercies, and that becomes a foundation for this petition. He encourages his faith from past mercies and deploys them to mitigate against present despairing thoughts. And friend, all of this is the exercise of faith. As we close, friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that the psalmist, his faith was encouraged. He was sustained as it reflected on past and present mercies because he attributed them by faith to the promise of God's faithfulness. Now, friend, as we close and we hold all of these themes together, what do we have here? I said to you at the beginning that in the first psalm you and I see, we learn the way of the righteous. Second psalm, we learn the object of his faith. And the third, we learn something of that exercised faith under affliction. Friend, in this third psalm, you and I see, you and I see the exercise of faith under a very deep and hard providence. And yet, friend, it was unwavering, was it not? Even when those who were his friends reviled him, charged him with hypocrisy, even when providences even exposed, as it were, to the world his sin, and even when God fulfilled his promise that the sword would come on his home, David took himself to the mercy seat. And that is the exercise, that is the work of genuine faith. Even under a scowling providence, you and I are to follow the psalmist in this way, to run to the God who holds the rod. The point of examination from this text is a basic one. What is the gospel to you? Is it something that your life hangs upon such that even when the harsh winds of providence may come, you hold on to those promises more than life itself? Or is the gospel something like a theological equation, a system of aphorisms? Friend, for the psalmist, the gospel was really, the 
the existential foundation of his whole life. And for our comfort, this text reminds us, friend, that that David here, he doesn't apply himself to specific promises, though he easily could have done so. In verse 3, all of those names that he gives to the Lord, those functions that God has toward him, all of those belong to the people of God generally. But notice what he does. He takes promises that were promised generally to the people of God, and he particularly applies them to himself. And friend, therein you have a warrant to do the same thing. Those general promises are spoken to the church of God, that's true, and and to all of God's people. But they are to be particularly and personally applied. They're not to be only in the general, friend. It's not only to be so that you are to say that God will work for his people all things for good. No, friend, faith is urged in the scriptures to particularly apply that promise as we look to Christ. You see David doing precisely that. And so, friend, this this psalm, as I said to you already, it's a psalm that is, is supposed to be emulated in our lives. You and I will be under rods. Perplexing providences, afflictions that are, 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 are touching the very core, as it were, of who we are. And so, friend, the exhortation from this psalm is to pray that God would only increase our faith as he did David. That we would stand as David stood, even when it seems that God, as it were, is our greatest combatant. To be of such a faith that when we see his sword, we call him our shield. The other exhortation from this text, friend, is to flee to the mercy seat often. Friend, any man would have argued to David that there was no hope for him in God in this moment. Did you not hear, you can imagine someone saying, did you not hear the prophet Nathan God is is now undoing you, sir. Why would you flee to the throne of grace now? And yet David goes. And he goes even, even if in his providence God seems to be scowling. And certainly, friend, that is a calling for you and for me as well. Even when the Lord seems distant, even a combatant, you and I are to go to the throne of grace, and find that the one who sits between the cherubim is pleased to be the shield, the glory, and the uplifter of the heads of his people. 